Hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast. Today we are talking to Steve Rutledge, author of The Death of Christ, the Bible and popular culture versus archaeological and historical evidence. Thank you for coming on, Steve. I really appreciate you coming on. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great honor to have you on. And your book, uh, The Death of Christ, was a truly fantastic book. I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, I felt that I couldn't put, my, uh, couldn't put myself down, uh, put the book down at times. So I think, I think you've, done, you've written such an amazing book. So thank you very much, Steve, for bringing that, up, bringing that to us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's, it, was, it was fun to, uh, fun to write. I really enjoyed writing it. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the, it, it's actually kind of odd the way the book got started. Uh, what happened was uh, I'm friends in our community with a with a pastor uh, uh, who is actually a beautiful singer. He he used to study opera in New York. So uh, and, oh, wow. he and, I be, and he and I become friends over time. And he asked me uh, during Advent one year in December uh, if I would talk to the congregation in a series of just Sunday talks uh, throughout Advent about uh, what was the world like during the birth of Christ. And, you know, so I did that and I thought, well, you know, what's actually more interesting to me is, is what was the world like in, during the death of Christ, you know, the, the year Christ died. Uh, and the other thing I realized was that, you know, the, the public at large has this sort of cinematic view that's it's very influenced, especially since congregations tend to be older, since people are less religious these days. Um, they have this view driven by American cinema and films like Ben-Hur and Quo Vadis about what the Romans were like and what the world was like during the time of Jesus. Uh, and it was, it was fun to really kind of disabuse people and, and, uh, of, of their sort of just basic Hollywood notions of the Romans, this sort of caricature of people indulging in orgies and constant cruelty, uh, and to really give them a picture of, of you know, this is, this is the world that Jesus lived and walked in, uh, that so many other people lived and walked in, uh, in the first decades of, um, uh, of the first millennia. So yeah, it was uh, it was really a fun, uh, uh, an enjoyable book to write, and you know it's it's a, a period I've been immersed in pretty much my entire life. Um, I was I was one of those people who uh, got hooked by I Claudius. You know, it came out when I was like fourteen or something like that, uh, and I actually had to get permission because it was so racy at the time. I had to get permission from my parents to watch it, and so. But we all sat down on Sunday nights and watched I Claudius, and so I really uh, have been hooked into Roman history since I was a teenager. Yeah, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating period uh, of history that. Especially here in Britain, we 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 feel very attached to it. Um, but yeah, you know, I certainly agree with your point that we have a very we have a very cinematic, Jesus centric view of yeah. this period. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, what was the political situation around the time of Jesus' death? You know, which who was the power in charge of the region, and and what what government were they part of? Yeah, well, the Roman government was just becoming stabilized. Um, it, it had gone through a period of about a century of civil strife before Augustus, and of course, that's the emperor under whom Jesus is born. Um, 
But, uh, you know, a hundred years of civil strife, and then you have Augustus who establishes this imperial system uh, where you have a single very powerful figure, the emperor, who has his friends in government, uh, people who are trusted going to become imperial governors of, of various provinces. Uh, that was a very new system. And the emperor Tiberius, the emperor who's you know, the, the head of the Roman state under Jesus, um, you know, People, people look at him and say, well, he was the natural successor to Augustus. But in fact, no one knew what was going to happen. There had never been an imperial succession before. Uh, uh, Augustus had to fight tooth and claw to be, uh, you know, even though he was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, he had to fight tooth and claw. Uh, uh, various political enemies, Mark Anthony, uh, obviously, and, and even the assassins of Caesar initially. So no one knew what was going to happen. And uh, so I get very nervous, as, as do other Roman historians these days, looking at, uh, at Tiberius as a natural successor. So the Roman state, the Roman Empire, as we come to know it, was still becoming consolidated under the institution of what would eventually become the emperors of Rome. Uh, and by the time of Jesus's execution, it was pretty, it was pretty well in place. Tiberius did a, a very admirable job in many respects in consolidating uh, the various institutions and form of government that Augustus had put in place. But it was by no means a done deal uh, in AD 14 when Tiberius uh, succeeded Augustus. So uh, yeah, the nature of Roman government was, uh, was something that had just basically been put into place. And that government was, was very small, shockingly small to us uh, in terms of the number of people who actually governed and ran the province. Uh, people could go their entire lives without ever seeing a single Roman official. Uh, if you're seeing the provinces, say, somewhere in Gaul or Spain, uh, or uh, or North Africa or um, or any of the Balkan provinces. Uh, so you know this this idea of an enormous sprawling bureaucracy um, wasn't really in place certainly in the early empire. That changes over time. Uh, but uh, yeah, the world Jesus was born into was just really becoming centralized under uh, a single Roman authority uh, with the system of government being being put into place uh, pretty regularly. Uh, that's that's really fascinating actually because you you've really challenged that misconception that a lot of people have of the Roman Empire was that it was a a very very stable government until its collapse yeah um, and it's interesting to see how even Tiberius the grand nephew of of Julius Caesar still hasn't got an assured place within this this regime now I wanted to focus on religion a little bit here mm-hmm. you know we have we have Jesus in this period obviously for our world today he is probably one of the foremost one of the most popular religious figures Mm -hmm. but what kind of religion were the romans following at that point we tend to largely ignore their religious life yeah they they were uh they practiced uh what we would call or what what scholars sometimes call a performative religion based on sacrificial ritual uh the central ritual being animal sacrifice uh worship would take place uh sacrifice would take place always outside of temples temples were intended to hold a cult statue of the deity and then the main religious uh act would take place on altars uh outside of that temple and you'd sacrifice all manner of animals to, to the deities, uh, rams, pigs, sheep, 
uh, goats, uh, depending on the animal, oxen uh, at times. So it was a very bloody affair. Uh, it was, you know, kind of like a giant barbecue uh, with, with a religious element to it. Um, but there are also a lot of different, you know, that's, that's, that's basic religious practice, uh, particularly in big state occasions. But there are a lot of what we call mystery religions as well. Uh, there were individual rights to, say, the Egyptian, the Greco-Egyptian deity Isis, uh, or the Magna Mater, the great mother from Asia Minor, uh, or Bacchic uh, mystery rites. There are all sorts of religions that were designed, or, or different offshoots of paganism that were designed to fulfill a lot of personal needs uh, and to address a lot of personal insecurities as well. And the Romans were pretty fierce about it. You know, they, they, they had an empire to prove that the gods had favored them and that the gods were on their side. Um, and, you know, this is something that comes out all the time in authors such as Livy, uh, who attributes Roman success to Roman pietas. And, and again, to, to get back to, to Roman cinema, uh, one of the caricatures of the Romans is that they're, they're, when, when Jesus comes along, they're all sitting around hoping for something new, that their gods just aren't fulfilling. But the gods had given them an empire. The gods had ensured you know, people being fed. The stability of, of you know, simple harvest of crops was dependent on a god called Robigo, who kept mold away from, from the wheat harvest. And so they had a festival called the Robigalia. Um, and they had all sorts of deities to prove that they were pious, that they, they had honored the gods, and the gods were important to Roman success. So this idea of them wanting to relinquish that uh, is, is, uh, is pretty much a caricature. Uh, they, they would leave that religion at their, at their peril. And so uh, there's a lot of polemic. Uh, that, that takes place between the early Christian and the pagan community. Uh, pagans arguing that their gods had seen them through plenty of success. Uh, Christians arguing, particularly during times of stress as we get into the third century uh, AD and, and all sorts of political uh, and economic chaos, uh, uh, arguing that because the pagan community wasn't embracing the true God, that uh, they were being punished for it with not just economic stress at that point, but, but in a renaissance Persian empire and uh, Gothic and, and Germanic uh, encroachment on the northern borders. So, uh, but it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of great scholarship and a lot of great writing uh, and research on Roman religion. It's an absolutely fascinating subject. Uh, and I used to actually teach an entire course on just Roman religion alone. And, and I just couldn't begin to scratch the surface. <laughs> Yeah, I think, and I think Rick Riordan's probably got a lot of answering to do for the rise in its popularity as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, before before we get into the subject matter, I think I just wanted to talk about the structure of your book very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It is a fascinating structure, uh, and the way we we interrogate and examine certain characters and start to look at the bigger picture as well. I just wonder one. I just was wondering why did you choose this this structure. Well, I thought I wanted to present to people what the Roman world was like 
at the time of the death of Christ. Uh, and so I thought about, you know, who are some of the major sorts of figures who parade through the, uh, through the New Testament, who we encounter in the New Testament. Uh, and of course, in terms of hierarchy, uh, the, as I, I titled that first chapter, The Man on the Coin, Tiberius is the most important. So I thought, well, let's deal with the emperor first. And then uh, his second in command, his praetorium prefect, Lucius Ilius Sejanus, who's up to all sorts of no good in the, in the 20s and uh, 20s uh, AD. Um, but then I thought about the, the, the other people in power who are part of that power structure uh, that we encounter in the New Testament. And so, of course, Pilate uh, and, the Herod, and Herod Antipas, the client king of Galilee uh, at the time, uh, would be secondary to the hierarchy of Sejanus and Tiberius back in Rome. And then looking at people under them, uh, the kinds of people they needed to perform their work in the provinces in terms of keeping order. Um, uh, I, I do address uh, the centurion, for example, uh, who's, you know, he's, again, I'm, I'm going to keep re referring back to cinema, I'm sorry, but you know, you always see these kind of menacing Roman soldiers uh, in, in these costume flicks. And uh, so the centurion, though, is, is an important and sympathetic figure, in a, in a sense, in the New Testament. Uh, so I wanted to talk about, you know, what's the life of, of a centurion like uh, as a collaborator of Roman power? Uh, and then the tax collector, Matthew, who to me is a very compelling figure. What were tax collectors doing? Uh, did they deserve this sort of nefarious reputation that they have? I mean, no one likes to pay taxes, right? No. It's a worldwide sport, bashing tax collection. Um, uh, so I wanted to examine that. And then uh, uh, Judas Iscariot, of course, the informant. And actually, that, that comes out of work I did when I was a, a, a young scholar just trying to get my my uh, sea legs. And so my, my first book uh, that I wrote in my, I guess I was in my mid-30s at the time, was about informants because they were very important. Informants and prosecutors are very important uh, political phenomena in the first century AD. It's how, it's how Roman law enforcement worked, both uh, on a political and legal scale. Uh, so they're sort of the bread and butter of the Roman Empire. And so I looked at Judas Iscariot, and I wanted to put him in his larger context as, uh, as an informant. What kind of work did they do? And, and they're important. They, they, do, um, uh, they do weed out wrongdoing. They expose wrongdoing uh, in the Roman Empire. And so I put him in his larger context as well. Uh, so I wanted to put these folks in, in, a, in a much broader uh, uh, scope than we usually see. Uh, and then to offset the, the three kind of categories of collaborators, the tax collector, informant, and centurion, uh, I wanted to talk a bit about resistance as well. Uh, and so that's why I have that final sort of uh, 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 very different chapter towards the end about resistance uh, towards the Roman Empire. And, and to contextualize also, uh, I didn't mean to do this when I started writing the book, but it got me thinking about contextualizing Jesus, the nature of Jesus's uh, um, 
resistance, uh, which is very, very different than, than what we see elsewhere. Uh, and I used to, I have to say, I use the term Jesus with a lot of trepidation too, um, you know, uh, for a variety of reasons, um, you know, trying to capture this, this character and whether you believe he's historical or fictional is, is very problematic, but whether he's historical or fictional, uh, he's, he's incredibly compelling and, and very different than uh, anything we've, we've ever encountered in classical society. I, cer I certainly I certainly enjoyed the structure of your book, and I certainly agree with that point as well. Jesus can be a very problematic character uh, in both big biblical tales and in our historical interpretation of events. So I, I, yeah. I did sense that trepidation uh, within your writing. It was a very interesting line to read and see you walk upon. Now, I want to focus back on Tiberius. You know, he's, mm -hmm. a, he's an interesting character. He's... Yeah. He, you certainly portrayed that in your writing. In ways, he seems to be almost larger than life, but also a man who loves his life. You know, what's mm -hmm. what was his role as emperor, first of all? You know, how powerful is that role? And what was his early life like? Because I, th I definitely think that early life moulds the man that we see towards the date around Jesus' death. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's hard because to me he's he's so compelling a figure. To, I don't I don't want to fall into caricature here, uh, but uh, to me he's a very tragic figure. Uh, and and I, I joke with my students sometimes that we need we need the Jeffersonian Tiberius, just you know the Jeffersonian Bible. You strip all the supernatural and it's just stripped down to the ethics. You get rid of all the rumor about Tiberius, and at base you have uh, uh, a very capable administrator in many respects. Uh, he had deep experience under Augustus. Um, because Augustus used him for a lot of governance and also for, for military uh, 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 affairs as well. Uh, August, uh, Augustus. Tiberius was a, a, an incredibly capable general, uh, a very well-tested military man. He had deep experience with uh, civic governance and legal governance under Augustus. So he's, he's an incredibly capable character, but I think there's a bit of a personality quirk with Tiberius. Uh, he seems very introverted. Uh, he, he has a very scholarly temperament. Uh, he, he absolutely loved Greek. You know, we think about Nero and Hadrian as these great Philhellene emperors, but no one had deeper experience with the Greek world uh, and with Greek life, really, than Tiberius. Uh, between his exile in Rhodes, uh, his living for uh, many years in the south of Italy in retirement uh, in Campania, which uh, where the, the language was uh, often primarily Greek. If, if when Augustus went to see theater in Naples, uh, it would be performed in Greek. Uh, so, uh, and that would have been true for Tiberius as well. So he, he has this uh, deeply sort of scholarly temperament. Uh, and, and he's just, you know, he also has a bad reputation, I think in part because uh, Augustus is just a hard act to follow. Uh, Augustus was a very affable man. He liked to joke. Uh, he, he liked to gamble. He loved games. Uh, uh, he was just uh, very approachable. Uh, and then you get uh, Tiberius, who is not 
he just doesn't seem to have the kind of likable uh, qualities of what we might call uh, kawilitas, civility, that embodies a lot of things um, uh, that Augustus certainly did, but Tiberius simply, uh, simply did not. He didn't connect very well with the Roman people either. Uh, he didn't like to go to games. Um, he was somewhat parsimonious in building uh, programs, which always gave people plenty of work. So, but he, he is certainly to me, one of the most compelling and tragic figures from the ancient world. Um, and, uh, you know, there's just this fabulous portrait that we have of him between Tacitus and, and Suetonius. And it's also hair raising at times, if you believe all the rumors about sex and all the sex scandals, I mean, it's, it's pretty gruesome. Uh, but I think you have to be careful of that. that that's uh, something that's always imputed to people as part of their tyrannical nature. And so uh, Tiberius is often portrayed in that way. Yeah, and it's definitely a way to try and draw people into ancient history as well. And I look at all this sex and scandal. You're going to love yeah. learning about this. Yeah, 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 now, exactly. How did, how did Tiberius then become emperor? You know, very scholarly uh, kind of personality. He was, you know, very exact. How did this man become emperor? And then how did he use that power once he got that position? Yeah, it's complicated. Boy, uh, and that's a good question. I, I guess I'll go to the last part of that first. Uh, Augustus liked to keep a really tight rein on the Senate. He's what we call a micromanager. Uh, Tiberius tried to give them more freedom, but after, you know, Augustus ruled for a very long time uh, for, his, for his epoch, uh, you know, living to 77 or 78 years old, um, yeah, he had a long time to have a tight reign on that Senate. And uh, they got used, the Senate got used to the habit of, uh, of being micromanaged. And Tiberius made the mistake of trying to give them more liberty. So they were always trying to second guess what would please Tiberius. And they, of course, fell into the habit of, of servitude, uh, at least according to Tacitus. Um, so uh, that's one of the things that Tiberius encountered that was a difficulty for him in, in managing uh, the Roman Empire. And also, he did have uh, consolidation uh, to, to think about uh, in terms of his power uh, as well. And, and I'm sorry, I forgot the, the first part of your question. Oh, so uh, how did he become emperor? Oh, because yes. it's, a, yeah. it's, a difficult, yeah. it's a difficult way of getting there. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's a hard question to answer. Uh, again, I go back to the uh, you know this sort of po more popular view. If I want to simplify things for my students, I, I just say, well, yes, Tiberius succeeded Augustus uh, as emperor, and he had been groomed for the position, which on a certain level is true. Uh, he had he was a very senior statesman. He's fifty six when he becomes emperor, uh, so that's old for the time. He has a lot of experience. He had been close to Augustus, uh, and Augustus didn't call himself imperator or emperor. Uh, Augustus styled himself as the princeps, which means the first man of the state. And this is an institution that goes back to the Republic, where by virtue of someone's authority, uh, maybe someone's military or, or uh, judiciary expertise, uh, they're acknowledged as having more authority than anyone in the Senate. 
And so that's how Augustus liked to style himself, not as dictator like, like, like Julius Caesar did, um, because that didn't work out too well for Julius, of course. Um, so he, he styled himself very differently, and he worked very hard to maintain the facade of the Republic, even as he strove to create a military dictatorship. Uh, and so this is the act that Tiberius has to follow. Uh, and this is what he's also groomed under. So uh, on a certain level, because of his closeness to Augustus, he would have been a natural choice. Uh, whether people were willing to accept that as a choice uh, is another question. And there were rumors that people would challenge Tiberius. Um, and that fortunately for Tiberius didn't happen too readily. But uh, yeah, no, it, again, it's just there's a lot of uncertainty about what was going to happen when Augustus uh, died. And you know, th these, these periods, we certainly see it a lot with Roman emperors and, and even to a certain extent dictators, there's never a clear idea of who will be their successor, how they will succeed. And same with Stalin, we have this two-year period where we're never entirely sure who's actually in control. Right. Now, your book is focusing on the death of Jesus. Mm -hmm. What role does Tiberius play within that event? Not much apart from uh, appointing Pilate as the governor. Uh, he's, the governors have a fairly free reign uh, and that, that in part is just a matter of technology. Uh, you know, you can't, you can't email Julius Caesar, or you, can't, you can't email Tiberius and, and get a, an immediate response. The, the journey takes uh, uh, many weeks, if not sometimes months, um, to, to go back and forth and communicate. And Tiberius actually would keep governors in place for a long time. Um, he was known to do that. Uh, the idea behind it being that they would quickly get any corruption out of their system and then govern more, <laughs> govern, govern less corruptly once they had done that. Uh, so, uh, at least according to one source, uh, Josephus. Josephus, Josephus has this sort of gruesome, uh, <laughs> gruesome metaphor. He talks about a man who's injured alongside the road. This is this is Tiberius talking. Tiberius is explaining to people why he keeps governors in place for so long, and. He talks about this man who's beside the road, wounded and bleeding, and there are all these flies sucking at the wound. Uh, and uh, someone comes by to help the man and shoes the flies away. And he says, no, don't do that. All those flies are full and have stopped sucking at the wound. Now new ones are going to come and suck at the wound. <laughs> and so that's, that's sort of the, the metaphor Tiberius used for um, for keeping governors in place a long time. They'd, they'd get their fill of corruption and then leave the place alone. That's certainly very apt. Yeah. Uh, and shows a humorous side to Tiberius as well. Yeah. 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 And he he did, he was quick with a joke, but but his humor could be nasty. He, you know, he had this real sarcastic quality to him. Uh, there's a uh, uh, just a couple of examples. Uh, uh, an embassy came from Ilium, ancient Troy. Uh, to um, uh, to ask the emperor for some favor, but uh, they also brought condolences on the death of his son Drusus, and this was several years after the fact. And he said, "Well, I give you my condolences then for the death of Hector, um, <laughs> yeah, because of this gap in time." Um, or there were um, there was the uh, suggestion in the Senate that they name a month after Tiberius, and Tiberius said, "Well, what are you going to do when there are thirteen emperors?" And he refused the request. <laughs> 
Yeah. So he had this sort of um, quality to him. Yeah. 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 I quite, I quite like that side. It makes people in the past look far more human than we tend to, to allow them. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned him already. And he's, is that just that step below Tiberius? Sejanus. I hope I'm saying mm-hmm. his name correctly. Yes. Uh, the, the Praetorian prefect. You know, who, who was he and what, and what was his role? Yeah, it was a new position under uh, under Augustus, uh, and it was intended to be uh, both an imperial bodyguard, but more than that, a police force for the city. Uh, Rome, for a very long time, lacked an official police force, uh, and so uh, Augustus put this uh, this institution into place, and they were scattered in various places throughout the city, so they weren't in a single unified spot. Uh, and the man in charge was a guy named Lucius Seius Strabo, uh, who actually was uh, under Augustus, and he actually was Sejanus's father. We don't know much about Sejanus's early life, but we know that he was eventually to succeed his father in the post as Praetorian Prefect. And so uh, uh, we do know that you know he was he was in the army. Uh, with a grandson of Augustus's uh, during campaign in Armenia. Uh, uh, but, but beside that, we don't know much more about him until he really appears on the scene uh, in the late teens under, uh, under, Augusta, uh, under, under Tiberius. Uh, and he quickly became a favorite of Tiberius's. Uh, and uh, he managed to uh, convince Tiberius to let him unite the Praetorians into a single barracks, which you can still see today in the big train station in Rome. You see um, uh, remnants of the walls of the Praetorian camp that was instituted by Sejanus. And he does this in the 20s, uh, 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 early 20s. And uh, uh, he does this in order to bring all the guard into a single spot, supposedly, according to Tacitus, to curry favor with, uh, with the Praetorians, which makes sense. Uh, they're a very powerful force, uh, anywhere from you know, about the size of a legion, which uh, is around 5,000 men, uh, who would be under Sejanus's command in the city. Uh, and so he also ingratiates himself with Tiberius and becomes uh, a formidable force in the imperial court. Supposedly, according to Tacitus, he seduces a member of the imperial family, uh, a woman named Lavilla, who happens to be the son of uh, the, the daughter, uh, or, or I'm sorry, who happens to be married to Tiberius's son Drusus. Uh, and she herself is the sister of who will later become the emperor Claudius. And so he manages to seduce her. Uh, and they, at least according to one tradition, poison, uh, poison Drusus, Tiberius's son. And he's basically, uh, I refer to him as Richard III in a toga. Uh, and that's how I sort of think of him. Um, but the, you know, the, the reality is doubtless uh, a bit more complicated than that. Uh, but did he seduce Lavilla? Uh, absolutely. He, he was a guy who, uh, to put it politely, kind of got around uh, and uh, was very charismatic on that score. Uh, so uh, that's that's how he sort of burst on the scene uh, in Tacitus. Uh, he's he's in Tacitus prior to um, well, I should I should explain this a bit. So uh, we have uh, six books of Tacitus, uh, which would be the equivalent of chapters in a, in a novel, I guess these days, uh, in terms of their length, uh, maybe a bit longer, but. 
he really burst on the scene halfway through Tacitus's narrative about Tiberius in book four. Um, and we lack book five, or most of book five, unfortunately, which is where the fall of Sejanus would have taken place. And so book four of Tacitus, uh, of his annals, starts off with uh, Sejanus seducing uh, and murdering, seducing Livilla and murdering uh, Tiberius's son Drusus, uh, and then proceeding to persecute members of uh, Tiberius's family, of whom Tiberius isn't too fond anyway, so he doesn't care that much. <laughs> it's, he's definitely one of those characters that you would draw out if you yeah. were wanting to get people involved and enjoying uh, yeah. Roman history. Oh yes, look, Sejanus is. Oh, he is. He is just a, an absolutely fascinating character. Yeah. So what I'm interested about is Sejanus. Is you know he is an incredibly powerful figure. He seems to be doing a lot of the work for Tiberius in, in some respects. Now, if Tiberius isn't so involved in the death of Jesus, how involved is Sejanus? He might be a bit more involved, just from the standpoint that uh, it's possible that uh, in part because of their shared status as equestrians, that is uh, what we would call knights. And that uh, 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 it could be because of that shared status that Pilate came to the attention of Sejanus for recommendation for governorship of Judea, which, which is a very small province also. Uh, it's not real big. Oh, well, I, I quite like the idea that they're working together there's there's people who are looking after each other at the same rank and and that person that he's looking after and he's speaking with uh, is a very well known public uh, biblical figure uh, pontius pilate yeah. uh, who who was pontius pilate uh, we tend to get drawn into this biblical narrative of his involvement uh, but we tend to ignore the man yeah, yeah. And that's really important to me. And that that actually was something uh, that I've had in I've had to be in my bonnet about that for many years. It's, it's something that sort of drives me crazy. Uh, well, first of all, just on a very basic level, uh, he, he comes from, uh, like I said, a respectable equestrian family, he may have been uh, Oscan, that is Samnite, which was a southern Italic people. Uh, he may have been Oscan in origin because of his name Pilatus and, and Pontius in particular, which is a Samnite name. Um, so we may have his origins from there. Uh, but uh, yeah, we, we really don't know. But this is where I get into some conjecture, but I think it's reasonable conjecture. So he's going to be probably in his early 40s uh, at the earliest if he's allowed to govern a province. Uh, so, and let's, let's even put it down to, say, 38. Uh, so he governs from 26 uh, until 36 AD. Uh, so as a young man, he's going to be in Rome, and what's he going to see? Well, he's going to see all sorts of scandal in the imperial house. Uh, he's going to be told stories about this. He's also going to, and this gets us into a very different sort of area, but he's going to see a number of spectacular court cases take place in Rome, many of which involve magic and astrology. And I think that's something that's often left out of the story of, of who Pilate is as a person. He's, he's a Roman who lives in a society that has laws on the books concerning how you can practice magic, how you can practice astrology, how you practice necromancy, and it's all taken very seriously. And 
so this idea that he would be a neutral party to, if, if we do accept the biblical narrative, that he's going to be a neutral party to someone who can change water into wine or raise people from the dead or feed 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes. Uh, he's, he's going to be worried about this, and he's going to want to know about it, uh, and uh, he's not going to look kindly upon it either. Uh, so that's a very important aspect of the cultural milieu from which Pilate emerges that uh, I think is very, very important. Uh, that's, that's uh, as far as I can tell, is almost always completely neglected uh, in discussions about Pilate. Uh, also, he's a Roman governor, and, you know, Romans are really very stentorian, proud people, and, um, and often corrupt and abusive, and they're, they're you know, uh, as, I, as, I, as I explain in the book, uh, a genteel governor like Pliny the Younger, uh, and we have copious correspondence from Pliny the Younger, um, including an entire book of letters that constitutes correspondence between himself and the Emperor Trajan while he's governing Bithynia Pontus, which is a province in Northern Turkey. Uh, you know, he's a very genteel, relatively easygoing guy, but if people are obstinate to him uh, during interrogation, as, as is the case with the early Christians, he simply has them taken out and put to death, uh, simply because they're likely not Roman citizens, they have no right to appeal, the governor is the final court and jury uh, in the province, and he's not going to put up with, with obstinate silence, as he calls it. Uh, so this idea of Pilate being this sort of benign character as Jesus remains silent it is really not believable to me. <laughs> it's, it's really very problematic. So the, the Pilate is, is presented in the New Testament uh, is, a, is a very compelling, tragic figure uh, on a certain level. But just uh, from a Roman, from the standpoint of Roman politics and from the context of Roman politics and culture, uh, is not a very credible presentation to me of a governor. That's, fa that's fascinating. We're yet again we're having a divergence in in the way that he's presented in one account and a way he's uh, presented in more Roman accounts. You make an interesting comparison in your book between. Roman governors and totalitarian regimes. Now, as a scholar of, of totalitarianism, uh, this is a point that got me really excited. Um, I'd like to really unpack this point and, uh, and explore a little bit more. What, what parallels have you noticed in you know, the totalitarian regimes and these Roman governors? Yeah, uh, of course, I want to be careful here, but because uh, it's it's very problematic, isn't it? But I guess uh, with modern modern totalitarian regimes, uh, we do associate things like genocide, uh, ethnic cleansing and and very deliberate uh, destruction of culture uh, with those regimes. And the Romans were at time at times pretty adept at this as well. Uh, genocide and ethnic cleansing are carried out. Um, in various forms with varying degrees uh, by the Romans uh, in the same way as modern totalitarian regimes. We have, we have no monopoly on that, unfortunately. Uh, it just is some examples. Uh, what Julius Caesar did in Gaul at times uh, is, is absolutely hair-raising. Uh, there were a couple of uh, uh, Germanic tribes called the Manapi and Usipites that he actually boasts about exterminating these tribes uh, on, I believe it's the Meuse, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. My, my, my French is not the best, uh, as I found this summer. <laughs> but, 
Mine's not the, either, so don't worry. On the Meuse, I guess it would be pronounced. Uh, and, and archaeology has confirmed the site of the massacre that, that he talks about now. Uh, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. So he has no compunction about exterminating entire peoples. Um, during the Dacian Wars under Trajan, uh, he he makes sure the province is ethnically cleansed. He drives the Dacians out of Dacia uh, and very deliberately creates a refugee crisis. Uh, uh, doubtless, uh, we can we can guess. Of course, no one's going to write about it because they're just Dacians. They're not Romans or Greeks. But um, uh, he did ethnically cleanse the province, and then of course. Um, uh, there is a lot of cultural suppression, not just, you know, we, we hear about the persecution of Christians by Romans, but the Romans uh, did their best. I, it, it, this is, of course, this is one of those mixed bag things, but they did their best to suppress uh, native Celtic, certain native Celtic uh, and Punic traditions, uh, particularly human sacrifice uh, that was an integral part of, of their religions. Um, and, of course, um, you know, uh, they culturally dominated the entire the entire West, uh, the entire Mediterranean basin, uh, actually, uh, for for centuries, imposing their architecture, their their way of life. So cultural domination. Um, it doesn't mean complete cultural destruction. It's pretty hard to completely destroy uh, a culture. And I think particularly if you think linguistically, uh, if you think of modern French, to take an example again, uh, uh, modern French is the combination of, uh, of native Celtic dialects, of, of native you know, Roman and Italian, that is Latin dialects, uh, and you throw some, uh, some old German into it and you end up with, with modern French. Uh, so uh, you can't entirely crush a culture. Uh, you do have these holdovers, but uh, certainly the cultural domination that we see on the part of the Romans and, and these notions that they could do with a people as they wanted, uh, which they did, um, is something that I would associate with modern totalitarianism without, of course, the, the technology uh, that they, that they had. So in terms of, for example, surveillance, they obviously didn't simply didn't have that capacity. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, it's fascinating those parallels where whilst we tend to think of, uh, well, whilst totalitarianism is this modern phenomenon, you know, those, those ideas that genocidal capacity is still, is still something that we don't necessarily associate with ancient classical regimes. And yet, you know, Possibly Rome is is perfecting that before the rise of med modern technology, and it's a fascinating parallel that I I did really enjoy love mm -hmm. oh, I love finding out out uh, about. So thank you very much for shining a light on that area that we don't tend to look at so much. Mm -hmm. Now, Pilate, as you've already mentioned, is involved in the death of Jesus. Mm -hmm. How how involved is he in that moment in that event? Well, it's it's rather hard to say, and this is part of the problem with uh, teasing out the New Testament narrative. Uh, and you know, there are any number of ways we could look at it. Uh, you know, my my take on it would be: okay, Jesus is brought to him in the middle of the night. Uh, there is a very quick hearing. There's nothing like a trial. I I, I deliberately try to avoid that term or put it in scare quotes. Uh, people often talk about the trial of Jesus, but there would have been no no such thing as we know it. Um, 
And as I said, he would have uh, likely simply summarily had him executed. On the other hand, uh, charismatics had been killed in the past and uh, it had brought popular displeasure. John the Baptist was someone who would have been fresh in memory. Uh, and supposedly Herod Antipas was wary of executing him because he knew that the ramifications uh, for uh, in terms of popular unrest might be might be serious. So uh, it's actually one of the theories why Jesus is brought to Pilate in the middle of the night to avoid uh, unrest uh, when a popular charismatic is brought uh, to a Roman authority and executed. And of course, Pilate's portrayed as being very reluctant. And, and that might be true. It might not be true. Again, this, this, uh, this stuff is very hard to, uh, uh, to give an absolute answer to. Uh, but Pilate would have been aware of popular unrest. But according to Josephus, Pilate wasn't one to really really give a damn and he really didn't he he sometimes was deliberately provocative but um uh and he ultimately uh he got into trouble with his handling of unrest ultimately and it led to uh to his being recalled by tiberius uh, in 36 uh so you know it, it's hard to say the level of involvement of, of i mean obviously pilot would have been involved uh, uh but to what extent uh, uh and often uh, there's there's a real sense and a very compelling argument to be made that Pilate is exculpated because the writers of the New Testament wanted to primarily put the blame on the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, uh, on the Pharisees in particular, for the uh, for the death ultimately of Jesus. And it's yeah, again, it's it's interesting to see those those different ideas play out and ideology come into it where they're trying to to blame a certain group for this event yes now yes. that 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 certain group uh the elders they they turn to to naming or labeling jesus followers as as heretics mm -hmm. uh, why mm -hmm. why would they label them as heretics uh well, that that gets you into early Christian history, uh, and uh, there are, there are scads more people who are better at that than I am. I'm, I'm a Roman historian uh, who's who's uh, being a bit of a dilettante here. But but the main thing I think is that uh, uh, when the New Testament is written uh, at that point, uh, or certainly when Acts, particularly Acts, which is our earliest book of, or one of our earliest books of the New Testament, uh, it's all about, uh, trying to separate, uh, and make different the followers of Jesus from the Jewish community, because, you know, Jesus is a rabbi. This always shocks people, and I can never quite understand it, that Jesus is Jewish and a rabbi. Uh, and it's so hard to sometimes get people to, to appreciate that. They tend to forget it. But he comes from the Jewish community and Jewish tradition, which is why you have this you know, deep emphasis uh, in Jesus's ministry on ethics uh, and compassion. And so at any rate, uh, the early Christian community is interested in separating itself from, from the Jewish community. Uh, for a number of reasons, and they do this by by uh, 
oh, a fancy term, schismogenesis. So the Jews circumcised, so we're not going to circumcise. We're now circumcised in Christ. The Jews have this dietary restriction, but what comes out of the mouth of a man, not what goes in, defiles him. So we're not going to have restrictions on diet anymore. Uh, so the early Christian community is very concerned to um, to separate itself, to, to be heretical by deliberation and design almost. Uh, and so it's not surprising finding in New Testament narrative uh, uh, Jesus behaving in a, in a similar way by the people who were experiencing uh, this, this separation from, uh, from Judaism. But again, I think it's, it's always important to note that, and, and this is another thing the Christian um, community often, I think, forgets, is that Christianity is a Jewish heresy. Uh, it is very much of Judaism. Uh, uh, and also very obviously very, very different from it. <laughs> Needless to say. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I'm not too sure that answers your question. Yeah, no, that, that certainly did. And it's, it's always an interesting point where you do tell people Jesus was a rabbi and, and yeah. Jesus, Jesus was Jewish. Uh, yeah. You tend to get responsible. Well, he was Christian. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you've, you've mentioned uh, this man, this, uh, this great person, Herod, uh, mm. and he's certainly an interesting character. You know, who was, who was this man? What was his role in governing the region? And, mm. and how was he involved in Jesus's death? Yeah, he's a fairly minor client king, uh, and there were a lot of them in Rome. One of the first, I mean, to go back to client kingship uh, and what that means, uh, it means that a king, uh, and the first one we have is uh, King Heron of, uh, of Syracuse in Sicily. Uh, they put themselves under Roman protection. Uh, they would, um, against their enemies, in this case for, for Hero, it would have been Carthage at the time. Uh, so they put themselves under Roman protection. They would often send a golden crown to seal the deal and it would be dedicated in the capital. Uh, and uh, uh, they, would, uh, they would serve Rome's interest. Uh, they might provide men to Rome uh, in their army. They might uh, give them nominal, you know, customs fees or whatever uh, in terms of tribute and taxation, uh, but they would still get to govern uh, the region they ruled in, in regal splendor. Uh, so that's the context, the larger context of who Herod Antipas is. Um, Herod Antipas himself came from the family of Herod the Great, uh, and uh, the story of Herod the Great and his family is Ooh, it's it's the world's deepest snake pit. I mean, uh, you know, there was a, uh, Herod. Herod had a lot of family strife. Uh, it was a very violent uh, uh, household. He had been put in place by uh, ultimately by Augustus, uh, and of course, he's the client king when uh, uh, when Jesus is born. Uh, and uh, he, he soon dies, though, uh, and he is succeeded first by a fellow named Achilleus, uh, but Achilleus didn't turn out very well, uh, and uh, later on, uh, Judea is just stripped of its status of claim kingship uh, and ruled by, by the governor Pilate, uh, uh, and he had, Pilate had a number of predecessors as well. So Galilee, is the main sphere of influence uh, for Herod Antipas. And there were a number of small client kings from the relatives of Herod, uh, small client kingdoms around the region. 
uh, of which Galilee was one. And what you have to imagine is a very, uh, you have to imagine, I guess, uh, Judea and which would be modern Israel and Palestine as really broken up into a series of very small petty kingdoms plus the province of Judea itself. Uh, and it's all overseen really by the governor of Syria. Uh, who is a fairly powerful individual. Uh, Syria is on the border with Rome's rival empire, the Parthians. So there are always a fair number of legions established there. I can't remember the precise number right now, usually at least four legions, if I recall, uh, in order to deal with problems, particularly on the eastern border. Uh, uh, so uh, you have to imagine Herod Antipas is being uh, a bit under the, the watchful eye of not just the governor of or the, the uh, prefect of Judea, uh, but also the governor of Syria. Uh, and he, he emerged from a pretty horrific uh, familial environment. And of course, he's, he's most famous for his beheading of John the Baptist. Uh, so, uh, uh, and he, but he was aware of this sort of element of religious uh, opposition. Uh, religiously driven opposition in uh, in the region, and he uh, all indications show he knew he needed to step carefully with John, uh, but ultimately was was thwarted in that. Yeah, but he's he's fascinating, and there there are uh, uh, in the in the narrative accounts of Jesus' trial in one of those accounts. Uh, Pilate as a favor as an attempt because Pilate and, and Herod Antipas had had rather tense relations and is in an effort supposedly to help reconcile those relations. Uh, he sends Jesus to Herod Antipas uh, to see if since he's from, from Galilee, uh, and as a favor, says, you take care of him. And Herod's rather disappointed in Jesus and sends him back uh, to Pilate. So um, that he doesn't have much of a role, or he has a minor role in one of the narrative accounts of, um, in the narrative accounts of the New Testament. And that's, uh, that's quite, we don't tend to think of a, a favor of sending someone a prisoner at all but if Pilate's thinking that as a favor then it's certainly showing the dynamics between those two and the tense relationship between them now mm. earlier you mentioned resistance yes the the Roman Empire is this huge monolith yeah. uh, dominates cultural political hegemony across mm. the region across the Mediterranean basin as mm. you also mentioned now, how do we see people resisting the power and the might of the Roman Empire particularly in this period? Often very violently. Uh, you know, there are a number of challenges uh, uh, to Rome in this period. Uh, within, the, within the first century, and I'll probably leave a couple out because it seems that there are a number, uh, but you have a minor rebellion in the 20s in Gaul. That's quickly put down. Uh, you have a, 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 a longer-term rebellion in North Africa that's harder to put down because the leader of that rebellion, a guy named Takfarinas, uh, is using guerrilla tactics, with the, which the Romans find hard to grapple with. Um, so that goes on for an extent, somewhat of an extended period in the 20s AD. Uh, and then uh, you have a... Uh, a, a short, nasty revolt in Britain uh, between 59 and 60, uh, or 60, early 61, I guess, 
led by Boudicca, that, which was probably more famous for you Brits than, <laughs> than any other rebellion, perhaps. I know you have that, that big statue of her uh, uh, somewhere, somewhere in London. Uh, and then, uh, so those are those are uh, those are some of the challenges that, that Rome faces. And then there's a rebellion in Germany during this. The, the Romans have a civil war in 69 A.D. And there's a brief rebellion in Germany. Uh, and then probably the most the longest rebellion is uh, the one of 66 to 70 in Judea. Uh, and then. Things seem, to, seem to, to simmer down a bit. The Romans don't face as, uh, as many internal rebellions after the first uh, seven decades of the first century AD uh, afterwards until uh, later in antiquity. Uh, uh, so the two extended ones would be the ones in North Africa and Judea. Uh, but they, they had faced resistance before during the creation of their empire as well. You did have some serious rebellions uh, uh, in the course of, of Roman history during their conquest. Uh, what I focus on in my book is I try to focus on uh, any sort of religious basis for rebellion, which is by confession problematic, uh, simply because religion and uh, civic and military life were so intertwined, it's, it's often hard to separate the two. And, and to see those regions and, and Rome emerge from them stronger and and deal with them quite mm. quite ably uh you know mm -hmm. a lot of us here in britain know of uh how brutally Boudicca's rebellion was put down and she is a she's a mainstay of our elementary and primary education mm. uh so it's something that we we do look back on we do hold on to now an oft forgotten part of this this period uh and the roman empire really is compliance collaboration mm -hmm. how, how do and we touched on it a little bit with Judas Iscariot how do people collaborate uh with the Roman Empire yeah uh well often uh particularly one, one of the things that happens is you get local elites who will profit off the Roman Empire, uh, who, who actually welcome it, they will cooperate with them because they profit from it, pure and simple. Uh, and so the Roman Empire would have been pretty hard to govern without those local elites. Uh, so I, I would, I guess, call that one of the first lines of collaboration. Uh, that we see in the empire. But then you also get, uh, you know, just the, the basic functionaries, uh, the tax collectors who could conceivably profit off of, off of their collection of dues and customs, customs duties. Uh, so that's a, that's a lucrative profession at times. It's less so under the empire than it is during the course of the, the Republic. Uh, the empire, by virtue of its structure, the advent of the emperors, uh, by virtue of how uh, politics started to function, where the emperor was the patron of everyone, tended to make things better. Uh, Republican corruption could be pretty serious at times. We run into characters like Lucius Verres, uh, who absolutely pillaged Sicily, or Canaeus Dolabella, who, who let people like Lucius Verres in his younger days uh, run roughshod over provincials. Um, uh, during the empire, governors had to be more wary. Uh, so they had to use agents like tax collectors and, and local informants uh, 
to to handle the population with a bit more kit gloves um, because they 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 were answerable to the emperor. It didn't prevent corruption entirely. I mean, Rome is always an old boys network, and if someone's corrupt, usually they'll circle the wagons and protect them. Uh, and provincials who had been pillaged couldn't really hope for restitution. Um, so. Uh, uh, yeah, so a, a lot of these people like Matthew, someone we encounter such as Matthew, uh, particularly in the Republic, it would have been much more lucrative to have been a tax collector. Under the Empire, uh, it's still lucrative, but less so. Uh, but we still hear of things like shakedowns, and, you know, it's, it's very much uh, almost like a mafia sort of scene uh, in the way in which taxes could at times be collected, uh, at least particularly according to some of the uh, sources we have in Jewish literature, for example, of the first century AD, we hear about shakedowns going on, um, uh, people very roughly collecting uh, revenue from their provinces. Um, yeah. And it, that's, it's really interesting to see that kind of idea of trying to profit for yourself and collaborate with others to do so uh, within this period we tend to think of this this roman empire the republic as these staunch valued uh, men people who who are trying to do what's right uh, with ethics and morals uh, and it's certainly it's certainly in your writing as well it's shown to not be so now right, right. final final fun question for you here, steve mm -hmm. I, I know you've been in the south of France on a yeah. research trip, and I wanted to ask you, what is your favourite part of the south of France? Uh, the Riette de Pork, Pork Rillets, the Vin de Pédoc, <laughs> and the Côte de Ron. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, seriously, though, uh, those were some of my favourite things. <laughs> uh, all Gaul is divided into three parts, right? Pork Rillets and... Uh, Fine, fine wine and uh, beautiful <laughs> gardens, I guess. Um, but uh, it was really astonishing to see uh, the amphitheaters at Nims and Arles and to really, really get a window into the skeleton of that construction. Uh, so that to me was absolutely fascinating. Uh, but I guess uh, because my, my focus is these days on cultural survival and destruction, because I'm really interested by precisely how did classical antiquity survive. I'm, I'm going to probably end up spending the rest of my life writing on uh, just, you know, I, I think the view of how things survive and why uh, is you know, very stereotypical, you know, Christians throwing manuscripts into the fire when it's actually much more complicated. Uh, so it was really interesting for me to see a lot of the cultural holdovers from pagan antiquity, looking at local styles of how something as simple as columns were constructed, um, and kind of contemplating the carryovers into the dark and middle ages that we see of, of uh, just the deep imprint of, of Roman art and Roman architecture uh, on uh, Romanesque and medieval, uh, which is natural. The, these, the people of Southern France and of France in general would have had these ruins all around them. Uh, they would have seen this architecture, seen how it was uh, decorated with you know, elaborate floral designs, 
so, you know, it's, it's not too much of a surprise to me, I guess, how these things carry over. Um, and so I'm just, I'm very fascinated by this. And I'm fascinated by it in part because also cultural destruction is something that's, that's continuous, it's ongoing, uh, both, both unintentional and, and willful uh, at the same time. You've picked some fascinating areas there, and I've, I'll definitely look forward to, to reading some of your, more, your, your new research because it sounds absolutely incredible, and I'd love to learn more about that. Well, uh, thank you. I'll be at work trying to get it through. <laughs> no worries. Now, people are going to want to read your book. I, I thoroughly recommend people go and read your book. Where can they grab a hold of a copy of your book, Steve? Uh, it should be on Amazon uh, pretty pretty quickly here, uh, if it's not already. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think that would be the best best place to, to start. Uh, I hate to plug Amazon, you know, Amazon's yeah. a, great, a great villain. But, you know, we're, we're all dependent on these things these days. Uh, I, hope independent, I hope independent booksellers pick it up. Unfortunately, you know, I, I talked to my local bookseller and they, because they love to tout local authors because we're a little college town and we have plenty of them uh, here in McMinnville in, in Oregon. But um, uh, they said, oh, we don't carry UK, UK publications. And I'm like, what? Why not? <laughs> so, you know, there, there's, so if, if it has a UK ISBN, first and foremost, they, they won't carry it. But, but I'm a big fan of local booksellers too. Yeah. Yeah. And me too, as well. They're definitely the backbone of, of our research and our community as well. Yeah. And I also yeah. personally want to thank Pen and Sword for sending me a copy of your book. Uh, they've been absolutely instrumental in setting up this interview between us two. So, Pen and Sword definitely have copies. I think they'll have copies of your book as well. Yes. So, yes, they will. Yeah. So, quick thank you to Pen and Sword there as well. Yes. <laughs> yes. The, the people I have to plug that the people there have been outstanding and in, in seeing this process through. So, I've been very happy with my experience. And if people would like to go away and read more about this topic, Steve, where would you recommend they go and have a look? Well, the uh, the bibliography on on Jesus, of course, is is vast. Uh, but in terms of just the the Roman historical period, uh, there are a number of good biographies on Tiberius, and any of those are going to deal with Sejanus. Uh, but there's also a new uh, uh, a new book on Sejanus himself by by again published by Pen and Sword, but it's a it, it's an outstanding book by a guy named John McHugh. Uh, and he brings together, and it was recently published, so he brings together a wonderful amount of material on Sejanus uh, and challenges a lot of assumptions. Uh, it's it's a wonderful read. Uh, but in terms of biographies of, uh, of Tiberius, um, there is Barbara Levick's classic biography from the mid-70s. Uh, Robin Seeger, I think, uh, maybe a bit earlier, maybe he was 72, uh, and then I see uh, there's a new uh, biography of Tiberius I haven't had a chance to get my hands on yet by a fellow named George Baker, which I was bemused by because the guy who plays the actor, late actor who played Tiberius in uh, I, Claudius, was also named George Baker. <laughs> so it's sort of irony that Tacitus would have loved. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so there's plenty of good stuff out there on Tiberius, something really great on uh, Sejanus. And in terms of um, uh, someone like Judas Iscariot on informants, I, I, I would recommend my book, but I wouldn't wish it on it. You know, it's a very esoteric kind of biscuit dry you know, uh, uh, legal, uh, legal history. Um, uh, so, uh, but there is that. 
and then in terms of Jesus himself, uh, boy, uh, like I said, the bibliography is gonna, going to be enormous. But uh, there's, a, there's a very interesting study that looks at the archaeological context of Jesus, and, and, and uh, it's called Excavating Jesus, that came out well, about 10 years ago by Jonathan Reed and Dominic Crosson. And uh, Jonathan Reed uh, has done a lot of archaeological work on trying to sort of recapture um, the the milieu and in, in life of uh, of Jesus, uh, what what actually interests me more than uh, than the than than the historical Jesus is uh, how how the Gospels came to be the Gospels. How did they come to be written? Uh, who wrote them? Uh, the theological arguments surrounding the nature of Jesus's divinity. So on that score, there's, there's a lot of wonderful scholarship and research, and I would start with, uh, I believe it's Paula Fredrickson, uh, I think it's when, when Jesus became God, uh, and it's about the theological arguments about the nature of Christ. Uh, many of these took place in the fourth century um, AD. Uh, so you know, the, the uh, no, no pun intended, but, but the, the bibliography on this is legion, right? So, <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot of great stuff. That's a very comprehensive list, Steve, and I'm sure our listeners will go away and read and listen or read some of those pieces because you've mentioned some fantastic historians there. And certainly the, the history and learning about the, the choosing of the Gospels, the theological arguments within that is, is a very interesting piece of history, a very interesting event. So thank you very much for that list. And thank you well, very much. Oh. If, if I could add one, what also, uh, she was very popular some years ago, and I still like her very much, and that's uh, Elaine Pagels, who's a very well-known name in terms of the history of the writing of the Gospels, and yeah, so uh, she's, a, she's a wonderful read as well. Anyway, I'm sorry to yeah. have interrupted. No, no, it's all right. No, the more, the more recommendations, the better. You know, as all, all, all we historians know, we all, we all like a good book, don't we? So. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Steve. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed reading your book. Well, thank and, you for having me. Yeah. And I hope our, our audience has enjoyed listening to this podcast, this, uh, this interview, because uh, I certainly have enjoyed speaking to you, Steve, and learning from you. Uh, and if everyone has liked and enjoyed this uh, podcast episode or video on YouTube, please make sure to like, review and share, uh, because the more we share history, the more we can learn together. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you.